Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio, and this is Gwendolyn Galsworth, your host on this, our weekly radio show, about letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we explore, we describe, we celebrate the principles and practices of workplace visuality, the concepts and the tools, the methods and the strategies the people, and the results of implementing the technologies of the visual workplace, letting the workplace speak. And what is the outcome? Well, first we have informational transparency. We can pull information that we need to us when and as we need it. It is accurate. It is complete. It is timely because we've made it so. And we get dramatic improvements in quality, productivity, on-time delivery, and a big, big, big byproduct or outcome or result is cultural alignment, a spirited and engaged workforce on all levels of the organization, not just operators, not just supervisors, but everyone. You too. You too. So welcome. Welcome. You can visit us at visualworkplace.com for free articles and these podcasts, and they will be downloadable in about a week for my books and for the products and services that we deliver on site all over the world. We help companies all over the world convert to a workplace that speaks on all levels. If you want more information or to arrange for me or one of our certified affiliates to work with you at your company, just email us at radio at visualworkplace.com or you can email us directly from the website. We are happy to help. www.visualworkplace.com Thank you. I like our, my radio shows to be about content. I like sharing what I've learned over these 30-plus years of hands-on implementations. I've been doing this since 1982, and it is, I guess you could call it the love of my life. I really love my work. It is. It rewards me. It's satisfying. It feels like service, and yet for me it is also a journey of discovery. I am always learning things. I have an active practice, and I want the, the time that we spend together during your busy day and during my busy day, I want it to be meaningful to you. Right now, we are marching through my book, Work That Makes Sense, Operator-Led Visuality. It is my pleasure to share the information in that book. I will be going through the pages and I will be making comment on it because it's been I've still had almost 10 years since the publication of the book. We are going to be bringing out a new edition soon enough. And so I will add commentary, and I hope that you enjoy that as well. We are just finishing Chapter 1, which is an introduction to the visual workplace, where we set up some of the basic understandings of what is a pre-visual workplace. And then during our last show, I did a scan of the 10 doorways so that you could see who else besides operators make a considerable, an impressive, a dramatic 
visual contribution. Those are through the 10 doorways. And today we're going to begin with the end of that chapter, which is the benefits of the visual workplace, and then we'll move on to chapter two, which is the building blocks. I have gone over these building blocks before. I did it when we started about a year ago, and they are truly the components of thinking visually, and we have more to say about it because there's more in the book than I covered in the show, and I think you'll find this very, very useful. We have been getting emails from you, and I got an email from someone uh, whose name is Dorothy. I'll give you her first name. And what she's begun to do is to share the radio show as a training, part of her training with operators, so that they can listen, and then afterwards they uh, debrief. They talk about what they understand. And remember, they're understanding through their imagination. They're understanding through their mind. They're joining me in the airways with their mind and understanding these concepts, which is really quite amazing when I think about it because the visual workplace is about the visual devices that come out of that thinking. I told you we have now, we had 72,000, now we have easily 100,000 primary photographs of visual devices, of teams working, of visual systems across the full spectrum of visual functionality. And so she's using it as a kind of radio book study, which I think is just great. Hmm? She's saving lots of money, too, because she doesn't have to buy a book for everyone. She can just share the podcast. Wonderful idea. Thank you, Dorothy. I know you're listening. Thank you, Dorothy. Shout out. All right, let's begin with the benefits of a visual workplace. As you're beginning to understand, a visual workplace is for everyone who works in your company because it is created by them, and the benefits of this are many. Here are seven. Benefit one, work happens. When vital workplace information is wrong, incomplete, confusing, late, or simply missing, all of these are called information deficits, problems occur even chaos. But when that same information is clear, correct, accurate, complete, on time, and available at a glance, at point of use, you and the people around you can get on with work. The struggle is gone. So the first benefit of creating a visual workplace is simply that. Work happens. Work happens. Benefit two, a sense of safety. The second benefit of a visual workplace is that people learn that they can depend on themselves for good outcomes, and they can depend on others as well. When the work environment is rich with vital information that you and everyone can access at a glance, each person begins to feel a new sense of safety, safety in body, safety in mind, and safety in heart. We reach a new level of trust when our work environment and the people who work there can access information at will. This is a powerful benefit. It is a powerful outcome. In this way, visuality puts us powerfully in the driver's seat of our own work, our own performance, and our own behavior. And there's plenty of room on that bus for everyone. Benefit three, 
visual thinking. Third, when a problem arises due to missing information, information deficits, you and your colleagues are able to spot that right away and eliminate it quickly through visual solutions. In this way, you and those around you become scientists of your own work and masters of cause. You become visual thinkers. I want to say something here. I want to insert a comment about this phrase that you're able to spot right away when something is wrong and you're able to eliminate it quickly through visual solutions. In the field of lean, this is often expressed as you're able to see abnormalities at a glance. But I have always found that to be a very limited definition of what, of what visuality can do, but also of what is needed. It isn't an on and off switch to see what is abnormal and what is normal. It is to see where there is struggle as well, to see the corrosive effect of not having information available at a glance. This is a departure from the kind of quick um, phrasing of abnormal versus normal. Because that is only one aspect of the workplace. Abnormal versus normal will not give you connectivity. It simply gives you an understanding of what should happen and what is happening. But it doesn't address in any way the why or how how to solve the problem of flow. Abnormal and normal. That contrast, even when you solve it, does not establish flow. Flow is established through the microtransactions of every part of the informational landscape. And I wanted to insert that. Okay? Let's go on to benefit four. Partners with the physical. The fourth benefit of workplace visuality happens because through visual devices, you have made a partner out of the physical workplace. For example, you learn to expect more from the floor. (laughs) You learn to expect more from the floor, more than simply its capacity to hold you, its capability to hold you up. You start to see the physical objects, as another example, in your work area in a new light. The desks, the carts, the benches, machines and tools and parts and shelves and cabinets and walls and so on. Instead of just things, you realize that each of these items actually can help you in your work if you give it a voice to speak, if you make it visual. This partnership between you and the physical things of your work deepens our appreciation and our use of the inanimate objects that populate our lives. Comment on that. This is truly uh, this is truly a, a condition of a visual workplace that is overlooked because in fact it is subtle. That we see that the things, the physical things that surround us, no longer get in our way, but actually add to our performance. We have named their contribution 
another way of saying naming their contribution is naming their function. And we will meet this powerfully when we get to Chapter 4 and we begin Smart Placement. When we begin to reorganize, rethink the layout of function in order to accelerate the flow. This is work that I will be asking you to do then and work that you are capable of doing. And not only that, it will reveal much of why today needs to get better. And it will get better tomorrow. It will get better through smart placement. So this making partners with the physical is what you do when you give inanimate objects a voice through visuality. You'll see this for yourself. Right now, I'm naming it as a benefit, which may seem a little bit remote, a little bit far-fetched, making friends out of my cart and my benches and my machines. (laughs) You know, if you've ever seen master maintenance people work on machines, there is definitely a partnership. These maintenance men and women, they talk to the machines, and the machines talk back. Hmm? If If you actually... You know, have a Pepsi with with some maintenance guys and, and gals, and you get them to talk about what happens in the night when they're trying to figure out this complex machine machine repair, and there's no one to turn to except their own brain and the machine itself. There's a partnership there, and it's a very powerful one. Uh, I've told this story before. There's a very famous uh, composer. His name escapes me right now. Phil, Phil Glass, Philip Glass. He was a friend of mine in New York way back when. And and my brother, who's a plumber, he was a plumber in New York, used to work with Phil. Phil was a plumber before he was a world-famous, world-class composer. He was a plumber. He needed to support his family, had a lovely family, and my brother needed to do the same And my brother is a poet today, and Phil Glass is this famous composer. But anyway, they used to plumb together. And whenever Gary, my brother, couldn't get a pipe to cooperate, he was trying to unloosen a pipe, some rusted, old, ancient pipe in the bowels of New York City, Phil would sing to it. I'm not kidding you. Phil would sing to it. He would sing to it, and the pipe would give up. The pipe would say, okay, I'll let you have me. And the turn would happen. I'm not kidding you. Of course, I'm hearing the second hand. I wasn't down in the in the bowels of New York with Gary and Phil. But Gary came back and he would come back and say, sis, they did it. He did it again. I got stuck on this pipe. I had this four foot, oh, I don't know what it's called, but it's a great big uh, kind of a wrench that has a, a mouth, a cloth at the top of it. You know very well what the name of that is, but it would have a four-foot lever. And he said, I couldn't get that thing to move. And then Phil started singing, and the thing gave up. And it happened as a regular part of their success as plumbers. It doesn't have to go that far. But for some of you who are listening, you know that it can and that it has. Okay, so we have this relationship with the things that are um, things. (laughs) Let's go on to benefit five. Benefit five, the bottom line, financial results. The results of the above, the above four benefits, which is work happens, sense of safety, visual thinking, and partners with the physical landscape of work, with with physical things, 
The results of the above are powerful improvements in product and process quality, in lead time, in safety, in employee morale, on-time delivery, and cost. Visuality impacts measures and metrics, your key performance indicators, your KPIs, impacts them directly and significantly. Make no mistake, when you share vital information visually, what is supposed to happen does happen. You and your entire work area perform better than ever in ways that inspire others and go straight to the bottom line. Here's an example of doorway one, which is the doorway you own. Remember the you is the operator. You own. These results are from several companies already on the visual journey. 15 to 30% increase in productivity. 70% reduction in waiting. 70% reduction in material handling. 54% reduction in walking. 96% improvement in quality. 68% reduction in storage requirement. 2 million 2.5 million dollars reduction in scrap. That's annualized. That's yearly. 7,132 hours of machine downtime eliminated yearly. 60% reduction in floor space requirements and 100% elimination of rework. Those last three came from a company in Boston that one of our certified trainers, Annie Yu, the great, the incomparable Annie Yu, worked with. She worked with 17 cells, and that was the result of one cell times 17. These are real, real bottom line benefits. We become scientists of motion. We go after those information deficits, and we eliminate them through solutions that are visual. So that's number five. Number six, company-wide alignment. Benefit six happens when visual solutions in your area get linked up with visual solutions in other areas. The organization becomes connected as though it were a human body. Like your own physical body, the company knows what's happening in all of its parts and can begin to function holistically. When all work areas are visually connected, communication between them becomes smoother, more accurate, more precise and complete and timely. Alignment follows. The enterprise knows and can know itself. Do you remember ever seeing this? Do you remember ever seeing like a little arrow? This is a sequence of three. A little arrow, and it's pointed slightly up, and it's sitting there in a sea of blue. And then do you remember seeing the second part of this three-part sequence? The little red arrow slightly pointed up, surrounded by a hundred other arrows, all of them pointing but pointing in other directions, either slightly or the opposite direction, or pointing up or pointing down. All of these arrows are cluttering, filling up the page, but few of them are pointing forward, including our little red arrow. Our little red arrow is slightly off from pointing forward. So the little red arrow is a well-intentioned person 
in a company without visuality, peddling away in a direction that he thinks is a good one for the organization, doing his own thing. And in the second picture, it's a bunch of well-intentioned individuals in the same company without workplace visuality, each peddling away in a direction they think is pretty good, many of them in the opposite direction, either opposite backwards, opposite down, opposite up, few of them going forward. When we bring visuality into a company and we begin to do this connecting up for company-wide alignment, what happens is it's the same company, but having implemented visuality, the same individuals, the workforce is aligned and each of those little arrows are pointing forward. Some of them are short, some of them are skinny, some of them are long and skinny, some of them are short and plump. Some of them are kind of medium, some of them are light, some of them are bold, but they're all pointing one way, and they're surrounded by one big arrow that holds them. That is the big landscape of work that is a visual workplace, and a visual workplace enables a group of people to do the same thing in terms of going towards a destination that they go towards together. It's called alignment, and with force behind it, it becomes empowerment. It becomes a direction, an unstoppable direction. That's what we mean by company alignment. And I have seen this dozens upon dozens of times in companies that I've worked with, and I've also seen it in companies that have become visual, but not thanks to my involvement. It is an enterprise outcome on a very high level. We say it's on a world-class level because it's that important and it is also that difficult to achieve. If you call connecting up the organization difficult, it is a journey and it does have its bumps and its detours, but the rewards are vast and the rewards begin immediately. You don't have to wait five years or three years or even one year. After a month of visuality, for example, you begin to feel the benefits. You have a small group at the beginning because you're going to pilot and figure out how to blend the past with the future in the now. <laughs> you got to work that out. You got to deal with the politics. You got to deal with the bad habits, the tribal habits. And the shift becomes for certain. Gradual and then strong. That's benefit six. Benefit seven, unity. The seventh benefit of workplace visuality is the big picture. Visuality liberates information and as a result, it liberates the human will. That is, when we take information out of our minds and out of the filing cabinets, out of the computers, and install it instead in the physical landscape of work in the form of visual devices and visual mini-systems, we can move through our workday with confidence, skill, and flow. And as we do, we contribute to our well-being and the well-being of others. We feel powerful because we are powerful. 
a deep part of ourselves brightens and engages. That part is called our will. That will, which each of us has in equal measure, is that part of us that decides. Decides to act, decides not to act. Decides to improve, decides not to improve. Decides to participate, decides not to. That will needs information to embrace its power. It needs information to flow. That is why the will often gets dusty, testy, and even distorted when information is scarce or when it is wrong or incomplete or too late or not at all. It simply isn't there. Stressed and confused, we lose touch with our true self, our true will, and begin to feel powerless, powerless to change, impact, or improve our lives and our lives at work. In the face of that stress, and it is stress, if you've ever felt it, and I have for long periods of time, it is stress and confusion. Some of us withdraw. Some of us become passive and appear not to care. Others of us strike out, become aggressive, and seem to care too much in the opposite direction. These two situations are not polar opposites, caring and not caring, passive and aggressive, withdrawing and striking out. They are instead symptoms of the same problem, information deficits, Missing information. Visual information sharing cures both. It is this problem's antidote. When we liberate information through visuality, we liberate the human will. Liberated, that will, our will, is free to decide. To decide, for example, to follow the corporate intent. To decide to say yes to the company's vision, goals, and objectives. Or to decide not to. In either case, the decision is powerful because it is ours. It is our will. It is powerful and life-changing. Saying yes means that we join in and align with what the company wants because we see there is good in it for us too. This is not giving up our own dreams. It is realizing that in helping the company succeed, our own dreams can be made more real. I want to say that the the word that I use for that is enrolling. Enrolling in the leader's vision because that vision is close enough to your own for you to say, that's a pretty good direction. That supports what I want too. Okay? Okay. This is a moment of mighty agreement. It cannot happen if we do not feel safe in body, mind, and heart. It cannot happen in an information-scarce work environment. Let me read that again. It cannot happen in an information-scarce work environment. Benefit 7 is the result of adding all the previous benefits together. You get something that is both the result of and greater than that sum. You get unity. An organization so aligned, synchronized, and energized in its own excellence that it demonstrates the higher values of human endeavor, generosity, 
harmony, common purpose, shared destiny, a growing excellence, and a built-in flexibility that allows the enterprise to succeed beyond usual definitions. Prosperity in the fullest prosperity in the fullest measure of the word blossoms. I'll read that again again. Prosperity in the fullest measure of that word blossoms. Such a company becomes a touchstone and an inspiration to other companies and to society at large, pointing the way to a new horizon of possibility. We learn from that organization. We can learn from that kind of organization even as it continues to learn and grow and change. To grow to the higher role it has embraced and to grow from it. This may appear a grandiose claim in a simple book about workplace visuality, but it's not. It is a truth that many companies have repeatedly experienced, not always in the fullness of that promise of what is ultimately possible, but always with a promise that the next stage of excellence can emerge if the company keeps going, and the next stage after that, and the next and the next. So you're invited. You're invited to begin to learn about and apply visual concepts, visual principles, tools, methods, the ones presented in this book. This is an invitation to become a part of something greater by becoming greater yourself as you help that great thing happen, a fully functioning visual workplace where what is supposed to happen does happen on time, every time, day or night, because of visual thinkers. This is an invitation to become a visual thinker. I said that slightly wrong. This is an invitation to become, I got the last word wrong, and I want to read it again. This is an invitation to become a part of something greater by becoming greater yourself as you help that great thing happen a fully functioning visual workplace where what is supposed to happen does happen on time, every time, day or night because of visual devices. Become a visual thinker. This is an invitation to become a visual thinker. So we're going to close this chapter, chapter one, with a great quote from Wayne Gretzky. Here we go. You miss 100% of the shots you never take. Huh? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Wayne Gretzky, legend in his own time. Let us move to chapter two, the building blocks of visual thinking. We're going to go through the eight building blocks. We're going to first establish why a visual workplace is needed with a little bit more precision than we've had so far. And then the building blocks are eye-driven, standards, the six core questions, information deficits, motion, work, the value field, motion metrics, and then at the conclusion, putting it all together. So let us begin. There are two definitions fundamental to this chapter, both of which you have seen before. The first is the definition of a visual workplace. 
a work area that is self-ordering, self-explaining, self-regulating, and self-improving, where what is supposed to happen does happen on time, every time, day or night, because of visual devices. That's the first definition. The second definition is the definition of visual thinking. It is a person's ability. It is a person's ability, your ability and mine, to recognize motion and the information deficits that trigger that motion and then to eliminate both through solutions that are visual. You must understand both definitions and how they interact with each other if you are to achieve a fully functioning visual work environment. And to do that, you have to first understand the eight building blocks of that thinking, the eight building blocks of visual thinking. So, there is one simple reason why a visual workplace is needed. People have too many questions. Some of these questions are asked, but most of them are not. When people don't ask questions, they do one of two things. They do nothing and just wait until the answer shows up somehow, somewhere. Or number two, they go hunting for the answer. Or number three, they make stuff up and they go with their own best guess. Sometimes that stuff that they make up works, but many times it doesn't. You may wonder why people don't ask the questions they have. The answer lies in the mysteries of the human heart. Some of us don't ask questions because we don't want to appear ignorant or uninformed. Others of us don't ask questions because they know that nobody has the answer anyway. So why bother? Still others have not been told the truth in the past, intentionally or not. So they have learned Well, they have learned not to trust the answers they're given anyway. And you know what? Still others of us don't ask because we've come to resent having to ask questions in the first place, especially the same questions over and over and over again, such as, what do I do next? What do I do next? What do I do next? Or, where is the material for this job? Or, Where are the tools for this job? Or what are the specifications for this order? Again and again, these are ordinary questions. But ordinary questions like these can rob us of our dignity if we have to ask them repeatedly. So that's one reason why why we just don't ask. Another reason is because the person we must ask, who may also happen to be our boss, is, for example, half our age or brand new to the company or twice our age, whatever our particular bias is. Our personal pride keeps us from asking. These are not uncommon reasons for people to hesitate to ask questions, and there are doubtlessly other reasons. And when the preceding conditions combined, we might find ourselves faced with asking the same dumb questions 20 times a day of a person half our age or twice our age who thinks his or her main job is to answer those dumb questions those repeated questions, those endless questions. 
So we refuse to go after the very answers we need. And instead we get angry or go numb or do nothing or, as mentioned, make stuff up. If we repeatedly don't get plain, accurate, and complete answers to our questions, we may start asking other kinds of questions. Eyes skyward, for example. Is this what I'm here for, dear God? This? Chasing down tiny answers to the same old tiny questions I asked yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. Oh, dear heaven, show me the way out of here. Show me the way. For those less philosophically inclined, the inner protest may may sound more like, what the heck is this? Chasing down the same stinking answers day in and day out? I've had it. I'm out of here. <laughs> Neither person may actually quit. We all have bills to pay. We all have loved ones to support. Besides, we may genuinely like our job and the company we work in if only the struggle would stop, if only it made sense. So we stay, or at least our hands and our feet do. But we may leave the better part of ourselves in the parking lot in our car with the window slightly cracked so that that part is still alive and waiting when the workday is over. This is not what we signed up for when we agreed to do this job. It is not how most of us want to earn our daily bread. Most of us want to earn our daily bread, our living in a meaningful way, doing work and expressing excellence. And expressing excellence. Faced with the insanity of tidbits, some of us go numb, others go ballistic. And at the center of this situation is an issue that affects and shapes much in our daily work life, not just in the United States, but in the world of work around the globe. And that issue is, who gets the power? That's it. Who gets the power to have the answers when and as they need them? Complete, accurate answers that are on time without special effort. Who gets the power? Not so very long ago, our society learned that information is power. That is exactly why many people feel disempowered when asking questions, and others feel far too powerful when answering them. One way or the other, asking and answering questions has become a a play of power, a power play pretty destructive to the journey to excellence. More about this in a few pages when we talk about information hoarders. Oh, boy. (laughs) Since the primary purpose of a visual workplace is to make answers to vital workplace questions readily and easily available without speaking a word, I say at a glance, we better look at the question of questions more carefully. And so we do. We move on to building block one of the eight building blocks. I-driven visuality. I-driven visuality. When you look closely at all workplace questions, all the questions that you ask or anyone else asks, you discover that only two questions drive them all. 
the first driving question, the need to know. The first of these two driving questions is, what do I need to know? That is, what do I need to know that I don't know right now in order to do my work or in order to do my work better, more safely? What information do I need to know? Need to know questions can be very basic. If you work in a factory, an urgent need to know question might be, where are my pliers? In a hospital, it might be, where are the patient charts? In an accounting office, it might be, where's that report I was working on yesterday? These are plain questions, but how many people will you have to ask to get the plain answer? There, there are your pliers. There, there's your card. There's your report. All the while you mutter, what's it doing there anyway? For plain questions, plain questions, here's some other typical questions across three kinds of workplaces, factory, hospital, and accounting office. These are need-to-know questions. I'll go down a short list on each of them. Factory, where are my pliers? What am I supposed to run next? Where is the material for that order? Where are the fixtures for that changeover? How do I change over the machine? What will that subassembly, when will that subassembly be ready? Who's on vacation? Where's my supervisor? Hospital. Which patients do I look after today? Where are their charts? What will the doctors, when will the doctor's visits be today? Does this kit contain everything I need? How many beds will be freed up this week? Who is my supervisor? Where is my supervisor? Accounting office. Where's the report I worked on yesterday? When exactly is that report due? What appendix do I need to include? Who do I give this correction to? How do I deliver this confidential file? How many more reports need to be completed today? Where's my supervisor? (laughs) I suppose it's not fair for me to do that. Plain as they may sound. These are the kinds of questions that drive workplace visuality. How? How? Because once you track down the answers to your need-to-know questions, you then translate those answers into visual devices and embed the answers visually, directly, into your work area, into your value field, so you never, ever have to ask those questions again and no one ever has to answer them. Keep going from there through cycle after cycle of translating your questions into visual answers, and you will build a robust visual workplace. Now, I want to say as a comment here, as a footnote, that when I describe the eight building blocks, I am describing a conceptual framework, a thinking framework, the elements of this kind of thinking That is different than describing a methodology. There is no sequencing here. It's more holographic. These elements are of fairly equal importance. They are different from each other, but together they work synergistically. They work synergistically together. The sequence doesn't matter. Sequence matters in methodology. Sequence outcome, step Outcome, step, outcome, step, outcome. So you're building with a methodology, but these building blocks that I'm going through now are conceptual. So let us not confuse 
the building blocks with the actual method of implementing visuality. Some more on eye-driven visuality. Please notice that the first driving question doesn't read, what do we need to know? It reads, what do I need to know? And that I is you. If it did read, what do we need to know? Then you'd face yet another challenge before you could convert your answer into visual devices. You would face a meeting. If the question read, we, you'd have to meet with others in your area to discuss and decide which are the most important need-to-know questions, what the possible answers might be, and is it really necessary to bother with any of them anyway? You'd meet, you'd present, you'd discuss, you'd analyze, plan, probably vote, and then certainly meet again. And there's no guarantee at all that enough people would agree that you need to know what you know you need to know, let alone agree on the form of a visual device that would embed that answer. This is a dreary prospect at best. So what I'm saying here is, this says, what do I need to know purposefully? And it does not say, what do we need to know purposefully? One of the things that happen, that happens, and I'm going to give you more about this in a moment, is that in visuality, we want you to act, to think, to decide, to create independently. Yes, we will talk about tolerance and how do you deal with the diversity of devices in the same physical location. We'll talk about that momentarily, but I want you to get the eye-driven part of that. The eye is the power of the visual workplace. And in this case, I'm using the letter I and not the word I that refers to that which we see with, the E-Y-E. The question does not say we, it says I. And since that I is you, you are in the driver's seat of your own visual inventiveness. Good idea. After all, you know which questions you need answered better than anyone. You know because they are your questions. And you know because it is your work, if only for eight hours a day. And that means you also know what stands in the way of getting that work done. So there's no requirement for you to present, discuss, analyze, plan, vote on anything. Doing so would defeat the very purpose in your asking that first driving question in the first place. Simply ask the question that drives you and drives you crazy and answer those questions. Then translate the answers into visual devices so you never have to ask that question again, to which we all say hooray. You see, I have confidence in that I, and so do you. That I is in each of us, the starting place for all workplace visuality, for you, for me, for us, is the I. And by the way, this holds true for all 10 of the 10 doorways that I presented when we went through chapter 1. That's why we say that the visual workplace is an eye-driven process, an eye-driven methodology. 
Because it is so important, let's make the point again using other words. Visual devices, the ones you create, are triggered by your own need to know. Your need to know drives the visual devices you create. You and you alone are the person who decides what your need to know is and what the visual device will be that answers it. As long as your device does not harm yourself or anyone else or interfere with anyone else in your work area, as long as that happens, other people do not need to agree with you. I fully realize that what I am saying will sound difficult. This is me commenting now. Because people have different opinions about how the same problem should be solved. There are several easy ways to handle that. And I guess I'm talking to you, Dorothy, now, because if you get to this stage, you need to decide how to handle it and to know that this is not, you are not creating a tyranny a tyranny of eyes, which I'm sure has crossed your mind already. This is the way you thread the needle. This is my commentary on this section. I'll tell you about what what I do. What I do is to establish the need for tolerance. We say, when there is a difference of opinion... One person goes first and does a pilot and tries it out and maybe runs the experiment for a week, for two weeks. The other person is waiting who has a different idea and there might be a third person. We're talking probably on shifts. What we don't do is try to force a consensus, try to force a tolerance of someone else's idea as a permanent outcome. We say, look, just live with it for the next 10 days, examine it. I am going to press you for you to tell me what's positive with this idea, even though you're going to want to tell me everything that's wrong with it. You're going to have to come up with, I'm telling you this right now, three things that you like about it. Okay? And then we can talk about what you'd like to see changed and when it's your turn. We'll do the same thing for you. We will respect it, and when we debrief, we will tell you three things that we like about your idea and what we think should shift on it. And you go back and forth like that. I-driven is always a requirement that requires an accommodation for the other. You've heard my definition of culture before. Culture is who I think I am and who I think you are. That's your culture. Who I think I am and who I think you are, whoever you are and whoever I am. And an aligned culture is when I know that I am you. Okay, that's a big jump. That happens later and it does happen. And it begins to happen through diversity. 
by acknowledging that diversity doesn't mean contradiction and it doesn't mean wrong. It simply means a different idea. One of the messages here, and I want to start inserting this in our discussion of of this book as we move through it, is that it is very important to teach visuality, and we have a wonderful online system for doing that that we think is really affordable. It is this book on its feet in an advanced form. We've been using it for four years now, and it is very refined. It requires careful teaching and coaching. People don't get this right away. They will learn something, and then you have to coach to make sure that they apply it, that they do their best. I want to dwell on this theme because it is of such great importance, and I will be prepared the next time we meet to walk you through a little sequence that we give as part of the training where we give people a kind of script about how to groom their thinking and their psychology to allow others to experiment so that the others will allow you to experiment. This is a very specific part of the cultural grooming that comes through workplace visuality. And the power, the power that drives this is the complete commitment to the eye. But it doesn't mean eye dominance. It means eye equality. So we'll stop here for the day. And I hope, in fact, that many of you will take on this implementation through these radio shows because we're going through the operator doorway now. I want to thank you very much for the time that you've taken out of your busy day to join us. I couldn't be happier. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm wishing you a splendid journey to whatever your destination is and hoping that workplace visuality will be a part of it. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak. We'll be right back.